Hi, this is Jeff Goins, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? So... I am a writer who writes books and helps other writers succeed. And I do that through seminars, uh, through online courses, through events, and uh, all kinds of other resources. And I write books about things that uh, I am curious about and that I struggle with, and I want to know the answer to that question. And then once I learn the answer, or one of the answers, I try to share it in the book. Yeah, see, you're, and that's what I've always loved about your work is you're a bit like me in the sense that you have, uh, I have intellectual ADHD, and I just kind of get fascinated with the question, and then I do a master's degree level research in it over the course of a year and a half, and then I release a book, and then I get bored and go somewhere else. Um, yeah. the, the beautiful thing I've admired about your work, so you, you know, you at least in observing you from afar. Um, you really started out in that writer track and being a writer and you seemed very, very literary to me to sort of begin with, et cetera. And you've done an amazing job in your study of not just telling great stories, which is the part we expect from a writer, but even sort of diving into history and social science research and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I've always admired that about your work, both uh, Art of Work and also this new book that we're here on the occasion to celebrate, which is uh, Real Artists Don't Starve, which is by the way, quite the provocative title. Um, <laughs> I skipped lunch to do this interview. I'm a little hungry. I guess that means I'm not yeah. a real artist. But yeah, I mean, it, so I, let's start with a big broader question first is where did that sort of, where did that come from, right? This idea, did you, I know you always wanted to be a writer, but this idea of nonfiction, blending social science, history, et cetera, how did you grow into that? Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think I am uh, you know, I'm, I'm an aspiring David Berkus, uh, and what I, mean, what I mean by that is uh, academia has always fascinated and at the same time kind of repelled me uh, in the sense that I was drawn to it and then at the same time drawn away from it, which I think you can probably relate to a little bit. Uh, in, in what I mean by that is I love these deep, interesting questions about why does the world work this way or why is this thing this way and, and that there's sometimes complex and nuanced answers to that. But then the second question that I have that I think academia sometimes struggle uh, struggles to answer, which is like, how do we explain this in a way that ordinary people, everyday people can understand? And, and what I mean by that is like, how can I explain this in a way that I understand it? 
because I don't get the, the nuance and complexity. And so I think I'm drawn to, you know, um, books that for initially as a writer, I was just drawn to books that explain things. I love storytelling. Uh, I read a lot of nonfiction, you know, in my um, earlier years, because I thought I knew how to, you know, I thought I knew I, I need I thought I needed to know how the world works and all the answers. And now I'm reading a lot of um, narrative nonfiction and fiction because I'm more interested in just the way it happened and, and not necessarily having a pat answer for everything. So all that to say, all these things are kind of leading together. I love history. I, I do think that wisdom comes from understanding how uh, tragedies and successes and triumphs have happened throughout the centuries so that we can either repeat them or not. Uh, but then also, I think it's important to know what's working today, how, you know, is culture, what are we learning from culture and science that um, it helps us understand the way things work today. And when all those things blend together with really interesting stories, which I've just always been drawn to, I think stories when told well are innately interesting and attractive to anybody. Um, and so when you blend all that stuff together, I, I think what you're doing is you are, um, you know, kind of creating a back door uh, into somebody's brain. I, I love how my friend Ian Cron talks about this. He said, you know, facts and figures go through the front door of the mind. You know, you've got to sort of kick the door down to get you and say, hey, this is this is the way it should be. He said, but art comes in through the back door, kind of sneaks in and changes a person's mind uh, somewhat subversively and even surprisingly. And I, I like, you know, both of those approaches, making a clear argument, but doing it in, in a hopefully deft way where by the end of the conversation, by the end of the story, the person goes, wow, I think differently about this than I did when I started reading this book or uh, listening to this podcast or whatever it might be. You know, it's, it's really interesting you say that. So I was in, in preparing for this interview earlier today, I was talking to somebody about your work in general. And I kind of described how it's sort of like, it's kind of instructional, but really actually the first thing it does is like convince you that you can do it and then show you mm -hmm. how, right? And set you mm -hmm. on the path where you have to learn more how. But some of that is you've got to actually convince people that you can do it and storytelling and art sort of does that. In this case, for the new book, For Real Artists Don't Starve, you know, I think it's not just artists, but kind of anybody who's ever wanted to go out and do their own thing, leave the world of employeedom and make some impact on the world first has to grip with that fear of like, I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be starving. I'm going to live off of ramen, which by the way, like we've all done because we all went to college, but even, but you know, the, the argument in real life from starve is like, no, that's not the case. There are whole business models behind however you want to express yourself. And as you figure them out, you can really thrive uh, case in point, Michelangelo, but more on that later. Yeah. You, can, you can tell that story whenever you want. Cause I think it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I write about stuff that I, I have struggled with at some point, and, and I don't I try not to write about it as an expert, but you know, kind of as, as a beggar looking for some breadcrumbs, and then I stumble upon a whole loaf, and I go, oh my gosh, this whole thing is here, and I didn't know this. I wonder if anybody else doesn't know this, you know, and you mentioned the Michelangelo story. That was the impetus for writing the book. I, I started it with the book, but uh, you know, I started the book with it. But um, the book also began with that story with a friend forwarding me this uh, news article about this discovery that was made about you know, how much money Michelangelo actually had. And that changed everything for me because what I was seeing in the world 
was I was seeing these two stories, the story of the starving artist, and I saw people living, uh, you know, along the lines of that story. They were living into that story. Uh, But then I also saw a whole different story that I just didn't see represented at all whatsoever, and it was the story of the thriving artist. And so I wrote the book to tell the other side of the story. We all know the starving artist story. What we haven't heard as much about is this other side. Yeah, no, I totally. And I think it's, I mean, I love the whole book sets up this contrast between sort of the the thriving artist and the starving artist, right? And one of the things I think is interesting is just like there's that um, myth or mentality that you're, if you want to actually create something and ship it out into the world, you're going to have to sacrifice. There's also, I mean, that's like myth number one about creative work in general, but really any um, individually expressive, let's call it non-employee work. The other is that it's sort of like lonely. And the thing I think is most mm-hmm. interesting, I mean, I, I attacked the lonely one in my first book, The Myth of Creativity, and this yeah. idea that it's, it's a it's a collaboration effect. I, what I really liked about real artists don't starve, or can we just call it rads for short? Because that's what everybody seems that's to be doing the, these days. That's <laughs> what the kids are calling it. Yeah. That's what that's what the that's what the youngins refer to it as. It's the hipster yeah. hipster uh-huh. jargon for it. But uh-huh. what what you really unpack is that like not only is is collaboration hugely important for just growing in the quality of the creative work, it's really one of the fundamental steps of figuring out how are you going to build this into a career that actually generates revenue. Right. And you did write about this really well, David, talking about this, the myth of the solitary genius. And um, and I thought it was interesting that, uh, and, and you, you know, introduced me um, to uh, Keith Sawyer and, you know, a number who, of people. Who wrote about it way better than I did. Let's just, let's start there. Well, I mean, he is definitely authority on this, the idea of, of group genius. And I think it's interesting that there are these myths that you point out really well uh, uh, about creativity and about creative work. And Real Artists Don't Starve is, uh, is not another science-based book on how your brain works. I think that the world has plenty of good books, uh, yours included, about that subject. Uh, what I wanted to write about, as you mentioned, was a practical step-by-step narrative-driven book on how have people done this for the past 500 years and then how can I safely assume borrowing from the principles that have always worked and continue to work today build a successful creative career for myself and as you mentioned one of the keys to that is in spite of the myths in spite of the stories that we tell about say Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel lying on his back with paint dripping in his eyes most artists who are successful do not spend their entire careers working alone. They uh, create, and I'm talking not just uh, uh, artists, you know, in terms of painters and sculptors. I mean, think about Thomas Edison. Think about some of history's most successful creative minds up through uh, Steve Jobs. These creative people did not do their best work in isolation. They did it in the context of community. Yeah, I mean, not only not only community and doing it, doing the actual work itself. Um, with others and benefiting from that. I think there's also sort of a, and this is one thing that I never even touched, but you kind of, you, you talked about in Real Artists Don't Starve. I mean, you referred to it as also, in addition to collaborating with other people and it being genius, being sort of this team sport, there's also the idea of a scene, as in where people who are doing that thing sort of grow from. And really that, I mean, that's actually probably step one of finding who you're going to collaborate with is where is the place or where is the group, et cetera, where people are, are doing this, which has not only a 
collaborative element to it, but kind of a, I mean, I don't know if you touched on this or not, but I kind of read into this, but kind of a sort of a zeitgeist approach too. Like it's not scenes yeah. in general are not just groups of people. They're also a specific place in time and you've got to kind of hit it in that time too. Yeah, right. Um, you know, there's this whole idea of the genius cluster, which um, I think you and I talked about early on when I was just starting, you know, a couple of years ago to dance with some of these ideas. Well, and, and every time you try and convince me to move to Nashville, you talk about it to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's kind of an academic idea, right? Like a genius cluster that outside of the walls of academia, like I don't, I never heard that term, you know, sitting at a coffee shop in Nashville over hearing you know a couple of um uh musicians talk about how they're gonna you know get their big break but scene this is something we talk about a lot and it's just the idea that uh creativity does not strike equally in uh every period of time and place in the world i do think that we can all be creative that's not an excuse to go well i can't succeed at this uh, but at the same time, not all places and not all times are created equal. So it would be silly for us to go back to the example I use in the book and say, okay, we want to be successful writers like, oh, I don't know, Hemingway. And so I'm going to go back and do all of the things that he did in 1920 to succeed, and it's going to work for me the same way that it worked for him. That would be silly because you know there was all, the publishing industry was different, the world was different, the way we communicated was different. We have advantages that he doesn't have, and vice versa. But one of the things I observed in looking at some of history's most successful creative minds, including an Ernest Hemingway, is an essential part of that journey was to go join a scene. And that could be moving across the country, moving across the world, or simply moving across the room. But it is clear to me, uh, based on all these stories and research, that we don't do our best work alone. And so where are we going to find these people? How are we going to find these people? Well, we're going to go to the places where creative people gather. And it has always been true that artists, entrepreneurs, whatever we think of when we think of the world genius, these people tend to cluster together. Why? Because they learn from each other. They grow. And innovation happens when you bring a bunch of people together, even in an unlikely place like, you know, say, Silicon Valley. You bring all these people together, uh, whether it's by intentionality or chance, these people come together at a certain place at a certain time and they do their best work. I'd like to argue that it's never been easier to find those places, those creative clusters, and either go join a scene or create our own today. I think, though, there's a there's a fear element to it all right and as we get sure. like yeah. so it's never been easier but it's also never been more complicated like logistically right when it's when it's the 1920s and you know you don't have to like you know get your cable shifted over and think about where the, <laughs> what school district the kids are going to go to sure. etc yeah. i mean there 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 is that that fear piece uh, for sure and i think that keeps a lot of people from even bothering to they might know where the scene is um but it keeps them from really jumping over into that scene yeah, and I uh, I love this book. Uh, have you read this book called The Geography of Genius? So, all right, admittedly, I started reading it and I got a little bored. But yes, I <laughs> have it on my <laughs> shelf and I need to read it. No, I, I, say, I say that because I, yeah. I, I read it thinking it had to do with the research for the book yeah. that I'm currently working on. And then I read it enough to figure out that like, no, there's not a lot here that I can use. So let me wait till I'm done right. writing this next book so I can actually like enjoy it. Let me we'll put it nicely. I have a similar experience um, where I went into it thinking it was going to be like a Malcolm Gladwell-esque, you know, story-driven research project. And it's not. It's a travelogue. He loves to travel. He goes to these different 
cities and interviews locals and experts and, and different people and basically said, why was Florence, Italy uh, the cornerstone of the Italian Renaissance? And why was Silicon Valley so important? And why was Edinburgh, Scotland, Scotland so important uh, in, in these different periods of time for creative work, for you know, uh, creating genius? And in that respect, it was really fascinating. But I liked what he said about um, genius clusters, places where creative people come together and do their best work. And he said these places were unpredictable. They were unlikely. You know, and he talks about Silicon Valley being nothing before, you know, the the personal computer revolution and all the technology that came out of that. Now, now everybody wants to move there and be a part of that scene if they're, you know, in the world of information technology. Um and uh, I thought that was interesting. And the other thing he said was, um, so you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to find today's scene, it's probably not New York or L.A. or Paris or whatever. Uh, it's probably some place that it, you know looks um, like a little bit downtrodden and is is on its way up. You know, so maybe Detroit. When when Hemingway moved to Paris, uh, it was cheap to live there. <laughs> it's not cheap to live there right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, when Patti Smith and Just Kids talks about uh, why New York was such a haven for the bohemian lifestyle, it's because it was a cheap place to live and it wasn't a very nice, like it wasn't a place that people wanted to live. There was crime and, and it was dirty. And so I like the idea that uh, where we find our, our genius may be in an unlikely place. And it may actually be in the place that you're in right now, like the Bronte sisters, they didn't have to move somewhere. They didn't. They weren't a part of any special opportunity. They created their own scene, and it was just you know the three sisters basically. The siblings got together, and they were in Haworth, England, which was a tiny little dirty town, Nowheresville, and the winters were horrible. And their father was a minister, and he was scared of outside influence, so he homeschooled them, and they stayed in their house and on you know the grounds most of their. Uh, young, you know, for, for most of their youth. And what they did during that time was incredible. They wrote each other stories. Charlotte Bronte used to write these tiny little books. This is crazy. She used to write these tiny little books that you could like hold in the palm of your hand. And they were 60,000 words. And she would use this tiny little pencil to write the words. It was crazy. Uh, and, and so she and her siblings would share these stories with each other. And they did this for you know, the first two decades of their life. Uh, and then they go on to create these incredible works of literature, initially under men's names, and then everybody finds out who they are, and then they find out they're all sisters. And, you know, where did that come from? Seemingly it came from nowhere. But even then, you've got a genius cluster. You've got a tiny little scene, a place and a time with the right people where all these elements come together where they are making their work better. So let me ask you this, though. Is is a physical space still sort of a requirement? Like when I, when I was reading the scene chapter, my mind kept going back to you, know, you and I are part of probably the only reason I still have a Facebook account anymore is because of this one Facebook group of only about 200 people that is like the most valuable group that I've ever had. And, and a lot of times it makes me feel like I don't have to pick up and move and find wherever. I mean, I don't know that there is a, a center of literary non-fiction for business people like what I write anyway. Right, sure. <laughs> but I feel like yeah. in this, you know, in this one app on my phone, the groups app, right, which has essentially two groups in it that are even worth anything, I, that I do have that scene. Do you, is that, I mean, is, is, that, is that a replacement to it? Is it a supplement to it? Do we still need that physical place? 
I want to argue tentatively, yes, we do. Uh, we need it less than we ever have, but I do think that there's something about uh, being in the same place at the same time. All my friends who live in San Francisco who are a part of, like, they're embedded in the tech scene, and they've got, you know, Tim Ferriss's number on speed dial. I go, how did, how did this happen? You know, how did, how did you become, uh, you know, super successful in this world? I'm like, well, I started by moving here. And I do think that a scene requires a physical place at some point. Uh, and um, Richard Florida talks about this. I think this is really uh, interesting. He, he talks about, um, you know, why uh, if you want to be more creative, uh, uh, you need to move to the, a city, a place that is going to help inspire, nurture, nurture, and even sometimes challenge that creativity, whatever that looks like for you. He calls this the creative class, the largest growing demographic in the workforce today, according to his, his research. Now, um, take our relationship, for example. Uh, you and I first met and have continued most of our relationship online. However, we've all also met in person, I think, a couple of times. And something happens to a relationship, I think, when uh, you combine the ease of technology that we have right now uh, with the uh, proximity of meeting somebody in person. And once you do that, like I just feel the relationship goes 10 times deeper. And I, I wrote an article one time when I was you know, getting on the internet and blogging and all these connections were happening. And I was like, man, it's so easy. Just tweet at people, you know, and just email people. I don't, I don't have to leave my house. And I was writing a blog post uh, on the, um, uh, the the most important way to influence people. And I basically said, you just have to email them. And and, and, and that's the easiest way to um, uh, influence people. And so this is the most important way to influence people or something like that. And um, I sent this article to Julian Smith, uh, who, who uh, wrote a, a couple of books with Chris Brogan. Uh, beginning with trust agents, which was a you know big book early on in the uh, world of social media, and I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And what I wanted him was like pat on the back, you know, a little tweet, you know, and and I wanted him to give me a thumbs up kind of thing. He goes, yeah, it's it's a good article. He goes, I don't think it's the most important way to influence somebody. He goes, I don't think it's the best way to influence somebody. I said, oh, what is that? He goes, meeting them in person. That's the best way. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's true. And I found. That when, uh, you know, take Nashville, for example, which is a little scene in itself. It's not a New York or an L.A. Uh, or Paris, but, you know, it's got its own creative entrepreneurial community. And I noticed that there were people living in my city that were doing things that I wanted to do. They were becoming full-time authors. They were launching online businesses. They were blogging. They were sharing these messages with the world. And here I am working for a nonprofit as a marketing director, fundraising my salary at 27 years old, sitting on my couch with my laptop going, I feel like I have something to say. Why can't I get my message out there? Are they that much better than I am? Do they you know, uh, they have a, a better message than I do. And, and I, the answer was no, I didn't think so. They just had connections that I didn't have. And for years, I was I just begrudged that. I was just like, well, you know, they got lucky or good for them. I can never do that. But then I started to study and I started to pay attention. I said, what are these people doing? These dozen or so people in Nashville uh, that I was following at the time, what are they doing? And, and you know, I looked at their Facebook and, you know, Twitter feeds and Instagram. And I was like, oh, like, they're getting together in person and and they're sustaining the relationship afterwards. So maybe there is some value to going to a conference or a meetup 
or just showing up at that coffee shop that everybody seems to hang out at. And even 50 or 30 years ago, uh, when you didn't see somebody for six months, like they were no longer in your life. You couldn't really communicate with them very easily. You couldn't collaborate with them. You couldn't do you know, fun stuff with them. Now it's like oh, when you connect with somebody every six months or a year, it's just a reunion. You know, the next time I see you, it'll be six to 12 months from the last time I saw you. And we'll just be continuing the conversations that we've been having because of technology. But I do believe that, that meeting somebody in person is an important part of taking the relationship to a deeper level. No, and see, and that's what at least uh, this is the strategy I'm banking my own career on is I definitely agree with you on the the face-to-face interaction. I mean, there's a ton of research that benefits. I mean, if if 97% of communication is the stuff that's not verbal, then it's you're going right. to have to go deeper, faster in person. Yeah. I just yeah. have found one of the things that's been really valuable for me is to sort of swoop in and go to that meeting every quarter or every six months or so when we see each other. You know, the, the next time you and I see each other in person will probably be like October-ish, right? Um, when another scene friend of ours, Tim Grawl, runs his thing, right? And I show up for that and we interact. And then I, I also find it useful to like go back to do the deep work and leave sort of uninterrupted. And that's, that's at least what I encourage a lot of people to do if you don't physically live in the scene is be visiting there very, very frequently. Like I tell my my wife often that like I make a commitment every year to get to New York City twice at least twice a year because that's where my publisher and editor are that's where this is that's yeah. where people that I need to sort of re-engage in I'm curious though because yeah. you also talk about starting your own scene just sort of with the people around you what, what advice do you yeah. have for people that are in that boat of like all right well I don't know where it is or where to go to so I'm just going to start with my following and start my own scene first thing to your point uh, David I think uh, if you're starting out and you're not starting out. So I think that's an important distinction to make. If you're starting out, one of the best things that you can do for a creative career, whatever that means to you, is find a scene where people are coming out of that place. I don't know what that looks like. It could be a conference that you attend every year. That can, that can create a scene. Uh, but it's a place where people uh, like you are gathering and out of that cauldron of connection success is happening. People are coming out of that and they're succeeding in ways that they weren't able to achieve on their own. Go join that scene. One of the best things that you can do is just hang out with people that you want to be like. Because what you'll find is you'll find two groups of people. One, you'll find your heroes, right? So when Hemingway goes to Paris, you know, he finds, uh, you know, he finds people like uh, Ezra Pound, you know, who he looks up to and trades uh, uh, with him so that he, he gives Pound, um, boxing lessons and Ezra teaches them how to write and and that's he's a hero but at the same time and you know James Joyce is a hero of his and he gets to you know hang out a little bit with these guys and look up to them and you know pick their brain kind of thing uh but um the people he connects with also the second group of people are his peers people like F. Scott Fitzgerald who's an accomplished writer at this time just a few years older than Hemingway and they become friends they become good friends for a while and Fitzgerald ends up introducing him to Max Perkins and Scribner's and the rest is history it helps make his career because of connecting with somebody else who's in that scene at the same time wanting some of the things that you want so join a scene scenes beget networks so what you have now David is you've got a network so you can come to Nashville and you've got a dozen or so friends that you can connect with because at some point, at some time, you got connected with these people and now you're maintaining those relationships in Nashville or New York or wherever. So that's a network. And what's cool about the Hemingway story is he lived in um, in Paris for the greater part of a decade. Um, but you know he didn't live there for the rest of his life. 
but he maintained those relationships and those connections, uh, you know, and eventually burned some bridges with people. But those relationships, he maintained those for years, and they really helped propel uh, his career. And so scenes beget networks, and then networks lead to collaboration. Now, what do you do if you feel like one of those scenes is out of reach? I get that. Like, it would be really hard if I decided, um, you know, I want to get in the tech scene now. I, I've been a writer uh, for the past five years, but now I want to go launch a startup. And now I've got two kids and a wife and a mortgage, and I'm going to move across uh, the country to San Francisco. Um, you know, I, I, like, that would be hard. Maybe it's possible, but it would be harder than if I did it, you know, five or 10 years ago. So I think if you're, you find yourself in this position, you have a couple of choices. One, do the hard thing. Some people do that and, and it works. Uh, two, you know, do what a lot of people do, which is go, well, those people are lucky. I could never do that. So I guess I'm just going to go, um, you know, work at Starbucks or whatever, unless that's your dream, you know, not, not dissing that. The third option that I see a lot of people overlook is look around at the scene that you're a part of. When I was in Nashville, I didn't think I had come to some great scene. Uh, I, I was thinking, well, it's not New York, it's not Atlanta, it's not Chicago, the city I moved from. It's just this little town in the South that's got some cool things going on and you know, the people are pretty nice and the barbecue is good. Uh, and I started looking for opportunities that existed for the thing that I wanted to do in the place that I already was. And that's why I tell that story of the Brontes. They wanted to tell stories. And, and it started out as just a way for them to uh, kind of divert themselves. But what happened, what's really interesting about the Bronte sisters is they were all writing poetry uh, by themselves in solitude. Uh, and it was a secret thing that nobody was talking about. As kids, they would tell stories and they would create these fantasy lands and they were playing. But when they got older, when they were teenagers, they started writing. All three of them started writing seriously and they didn't share with each other. And the first time this happened, uh, one of the sisters went up to another one, I can't remember which one, maybe Emily, uh, and she basically said, um, well, what happened was one had like found some poems and she said, hey, I found your poems. And she got so mad at her, but you know, she started, this got into this fight, she started screaming at her and she said, I liked them, they were good. And and so began this collaboration that happened that that these sisters carried on for the rest of their lives and help them get better and better, help them get published, help their work spread uh, much uh, further than it ever would have done in, in itself. And so I think in order for you to create a scene, what you have to do is you have to look around where you are and go, what are the advantages of being in this town right now? One of the advantages of Nashville is it's not New York. Uh, it's easier to bump into people here because there's no paparazzi, uh, unlike in LA. Uh, there's not, you know, a bajillion people. There's not even a million people here, unlike New York. And, and there's not a lot of gatekeepers. Like, I will run into Brad Paisley at the local coffee shop like it's no big deal. And nobody will bother him. And so the opportunities to create connections are a lot easier. And I saw that. And I was like, I wonder if I just start emailing people and tweeting at them, heroes of mine, famous people, and see if they want to have coffee with me. And I would say 80% of them said yes, just because... It's easy, you know, and they just step out their front door and walk to the coffee shop, and it's no big deal. So uh, look at the scene that you're a part of. Look at the things that make this unique. Uh, and then the second thing, the hardest thing, is what the Bronte sisters do with each other. You have to be vulnerable. You have to walk across the room. You have to walk up to, to somebody and say, hey, uh, I read your work. You know, uh, thank you for it. Or send an email. Shake somebody's hand. Like, this is the hard part, at least with the people that I talk to, other writers, where they go, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not an extrovert. 
You don't have to be an extrovert. You just have to be willing to talk to somebody. And even introverts have to do that once in a while. No, I, I really love that idea. I mean, we could, we could actually riff on the introvert extrovert thing for a while, but I really love the idea of like uh, thinking first about what's accessible, right? So in your right. case, there's right. this huge benefit because in, in Nashville, it's, it's sort of accessible. It might be different depending on different cities, et cetera, but thinking about what's accessible, who's there, what's sort of the, to steal a Steven Johnson, uh, Dr. Kaufman term, what's sort of like, who's the adjacent possible of who I could reach out to and begin to build uh, around me. I think, you know, in, in your case, actually, I think you know, one of the ones that I remember about from some of your writing, I don't think it's in this book, but it's in articles of yours that I've read, was the, the linchpin or the tipping point or whatever buzzword famous book you want to call it, was really reaching out to Michael Hyatt because that was sort of the beginning the brokerage into the cluster of people who've kind of become your scene. Am I right or am I wrong in that? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I mentioned him in the book where I talk about patrons. So yeah, uh, what you want is you typically want, when you break into a scene, you want to try to find a few gatekeepers or tastemakers, as one researcher calls them. I read a great book. It's a, it's a little bit academic, but it's fun. Uh, called um, the Warhol Economy, and it talks about specifically New York City and why historically it's been a center for music, art, uh, style, fashion, all these things have come out of it. And one of the reasons for it is it's a very walkable city, unlike LA. And, and they talked about why the art scene was stronger in New York and why every city that has a strong creative economy uh, it has a much higher GDP than the, um, uh, uh, I guess, a GDP. Do cities have GDPs? I think they do. Uh, like, th they make more money than um, than other cities that don't. I thought that was really interesting. But, you know, you need to find the tastemakers, the people who, when, yeah, when Michael Hyatt says, listen to this person, lots of people listen. And so you need to find those people, and then you need to find the people that are close to them. And so by the time I met Mike Hyatt, uh, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't do this very well. I recently had a conversation with him where he gave me some great feedback on things that I didn't do right when I met him. Uh, like I didn't ask any questions. Like I just showed up and like looked at him, you know. And, and so you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this perfectly, is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, like there is some grace here. But what I had done was I had just by happenstance, but also kind of intentionally. Uh, met some of his friends. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I had volunteered at, at a couple of other people's events uh, where I knew he was going to be. And I was, I was saying, hey, I, I will blog about this for you or I will run your social media. And I was doing it uh, to get a free ticket the, to the event because uh, I knew I could, these are smaller conferences and I knew I could bump into people like him. And so by the time I met him, he said, yeah, I heard about you from so-and-so. And I think that's a really good thing. I mean, that's what you want to happen is you want to uh, get into the scene, start helping people. Hemingway later in life, and I'm using him because he's kind of the, the uh, there's lots of people who did this, but he's the example I use in the book to kick off this idea of joining a scene. Um, he later in life was known as this brash, macho guy who, you know, burnt bridges and wasn't easy to get along with. When he joined the scene in Paris, he was charismatic, he was young, he, he was um, uh, helpful. Uh, and so when he reached out to these people, he was their student. And he was just this kid, 20-year-old kid, 21-year-old kid who had just gotten back from the war, uh, you know, working with the Red Cross, had been wounded, and he wanted to write stories. But you know, he was a journalist and was writing stories on the side. 
And so he just goes around and just asks questions and becomes their protege. And he starts helping them, right? He's teaching Ezra Pound how to box. He gets Gertrude Stein published. He volunteers as an editor for this uh, literary magazine. It's not a big magazine, but he gets to know all these people who are in the avant-garde just by hanging out with these people and then helping them. And so I think it's it's good to be mindful of tastemakers, but don't like prop them up too much because you can very likely get to know uh, their less famous friends initially, and then they will introduce you to to that friend or the next person, and and that can be just as useful, if not more. That's solid advice. It really is. On on. I mean, first of all, I I love the admission that you messed it up the first time you you <laughs> you met Michael, which proves that like don't be afraid, right? But also, I mean, I, I love that advice as well. So the 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 book again, real artists don't starve. There's a whole lot more in there than just this sort of scene and collaboration piece. Um, but I mean, that's the one I was most fascinated with. So I wanted to monopolize your time talking about that one. But I encourage you whether you you feel like you want to build a career around doing something we traditionally think of as creative creative or really you just want to do your thing there's that passion in you to do something to get some message out to make some impact and you want to kind of again leave the world of faceless employeedom and gain that kind of impact i encourage you to check it out because not only is it sort of the inspiration it's also the manual on how to do that jeff you know what's coming though i want to end i want to switch the focus from the book to you not that we haven't talked about all of your embarrassing moments already, but I've got a few questions to tease those out um, a little bit more. <laughs> um, so our first question we ask all guests, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I probably ever received, particularly as it relates to this, was um, when I was getting to know Mike Hyatt and meeting him, by the way, was um, a really good experience. It was a very positive one for me. I felt like I had you know, won the lottery because he was somebody I looked up to but in and of itself, it was insignificant. Uh, it did not change my trajectory for success. It did not change my life or career in any way because it was an hour-long meeting uh, over coffee, and that was it. What did change my life was the seven months of conversation that we had, most of which was conducted via email, to your point, David, uh, where we I just learned from them. And I would I'd say, hey, I, I call this the case study strategy. So many people want to pick someone, somebody's brain, and what you really want to do is you want to become somebody's case study. And so I'd go to him and I'd say, hey, I just read this blog post that you wrote. I did that. What else should I do? Thanks for that, by the way. And I showed him pretty quickly that I was – a learner and I was willing to do whatever and I realized through this experience that influencers do want to influence other people and they want to do this both you know one to many and one to one their fear or hesitation is are you worth my time and if you can show somebody I'm already providing a return on your investment of stuff that you didn't even know was helping me so we began that kind of uh, relationship and I was uh, driving him to the airport one time and I asked him, I said, um, like, how, like, because I saw so many people. Remember, I, I looked at, at these dozen or so people in Nashville that were becoming successful, and, and a few years later, their lives were imploding. They were getting divorces, they're having affairs, um, they, you know, they were giving into addiction, or you know, like their, their careers were just falling apart because a book didn't sell well. I mean, all this stuff, I was seeing all of it. And keep in mind, I live in a city of artists, so they're prone to a little bit of melodrama. But I was looking at this going, oh, my God, this could happen to me. How do, how do you avoid this? And I asked him this. So long prelude, prelude for some pretty good advice, which was he said, I have friends who aren't impressed with my accomplishments. And I think that is stellar advice. Become friends. Maintain friends 
that don't know who you are, that don't care, and are not impressed by what you've done. Mm, I know. I really like that. And, you know, secretly, that's one of the reasons I, I also live away from a scene is, yeah, is that yeah. idea of like, my best yep. friend's a mechanic. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so there yeah, you go. Yeah. Yep. Um, what does the ideal work day look like for you? This is a good question. I feel like I'm constantly reshaping this and never completely content with what I have. You know, I hear somebody talk about batching, and so I'm like, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll batch. You know, but then I'll come to my meeting day, and I'll be dreading it. And it's like, this is horrible. Uh, so the ideal work day for me right now is um, get up. And this, you know, today's not a bad work day. I get up. I go work out. I come back. Uh, family's just getting up. I make breakfast for everybody. Uh, you know, uh, I take my son to school or soccer camp in the case of today. And, uh, and then I come back home. Um, you know, drink some coffee, kind of have my morning routine after everybody's off doing their own thing. That's typically from like nine to 10 shower and kind of get started with the day between 10 and 11, do uh, just a little bit of um, uh, creative work, go to lunch and then dive into it, um, you know, from one to four, wrap up around 4.30, home by five. I make dinner, play with the kids, and um, you know, put them to bed, and then hang out chatting with my uh, uh, you know wife for that last hour or so of the day. That's that's a pretty good day. And so most days I'm working like five hours, not a ton of time, and uh, getting you know pretty late start in the day. I I like the morning time, even if I'm not sitting at my desk creating. That's a very creative time for me and whenever I start the day with a lot of admin, which I have to do sometimes, it just, it, it, it consumes my whole day. And so it's very stymieing. And so I like to do that stuff, you know, late afternoon uh, and spend the greater part of the day coming up with ideas and then kind of executing them. And then, you know, in, in the mid to late afternoon, I'm doing email, phone calls, you know, wrapping up more administrative stuff. I like it. What are you reading right now? Too many things. Um, I'm reading a few. I have to like pull up an app. You know, I don't. I don't know what I'm reading. Um, I'm reading a number of exploration stories for a book that I might write. Um, and so I, I just read a book called I think it's called 438 Days. Yeah, 438 Days. It's a story about this Mexican fisherman who was lost at sea and survived. Was he lost was for pretty- 438 days? Yeah, it was lost for about five days. They just, I mean, it was just a very grabbing title. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it was the, it is the longest, it is one of, if not the longest uh, documented time that somebody was lost at sea and then came back. Uh, so I'm reading that. And I just started a book called Into the Silence, which is about George Mallory, who uh, was one of the first people to attempt climbing Everest and disappeared uh, while he was trying to reach the final summit. And there's some, heated discussion uh, among historians as to whether or not he got to the top. Some people believe he did. Some people believe he didn't. That's a fascinating story. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, What do you believe that most people disagree with? What do I believe that most people disagree with? Um, I believe I have this, um, I have kind of a, a, a weird belief that, um, I, I can do just about anything that I put my mind to. And I don't think most people believe that about themselves. Um, 
I have this conversation with my wife all the time. We talk about giftedness. Um, you know, you've read a lot of the research and science on this, on skill acquisition and how, you know, nature versus nurture and how much, it, how much can actually be inborn. Um, but I, I kind of believe that you can do almost within reason. You know, there are some uh, genetic limitations, but 99% of what we can accomplish um you know, short of some physical or mental disability, a significant disability. Um, like if you're, you know, uh, an average person, you can do just about anything. And I think most people don't believe that. Mm. You know, I mean, that's, it's funny. We've known about, you know, since Carol Dweck's work with growth versus fixed mindset, we've known about this for a long time, more than a decade. And yet I still feel like the majority of people have that fixed mindset of just, there's a couple things I'm good at and I need to figure out what those are. And I can't really grow and develop in any of those. So, you're, you're right that most people yeah. probably disagree with you. It's a shame. I don't disagree with you, but um, it is a shame that I think most people do disagree with that. Yeah, and I, I wrestle with it. So every time I fail, like the, the, the fixed mindset comes back in and goes, like I, I, don't, I don't do the growth mindset thing. I have you know, a fixed mindset that I constantly grapple with. But every time I fail, I go, well, maybe you're not supposed to do this. Maybe you're not cut out for it. Maybe you're not good enough at this. And, and so, I mean, I get it. But I do think at my core, like I sometimes to a fault will go, yeah, I can do that. Or I can do that in this ridiculous, you know, span of, span of time. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is sad because I do think we are capable of doing more than we believe we are. So our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I think, I think you're a leader when somebody follows you. And, and maybe that's not a great definition to have because it's placing the responsibility, like it's putting it outside of your responsibility. But just like I think art is not really art until it's impacted or transformed at least somebody else. So art is not art if it's a novel sitting in your sock drawer. Uh, you know, you're not a genius if you have some idea that you haven't shared with the world. You're just one of millions of people that had a good idea that never turned into something. And you're not a leader if you're not actually influencing someone. Uh, and so I, I do think that it doesn't have to be a lot of people. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to get paid to do this or have a name tag or a certificate. Uh, but you do have to have somebody saying, I am following her. I am listening to him because what they say, what they do matters. And in some form or another, I'm trying to pattern my life or my work after what they do and say. You know, the parallels of uh, art and the impact of art and the influence of art and the parallels between that and leadership are probably, uh, we could fill up a whole other episode for that. So we'll, we'll go ahead and mark that down for next season. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we really could, and so I love that idea. And on that note, right, whether it is making art or whether it really is just trying to lead people and influence people with an idea, there are insights in Real Artists Don't Starve that everybody listening can benefit from. So I encourage you to check that out. In the meantime, Jeff, Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thanks for having me, David.